0: <laughs> Sorry. I know. I heard that <laughs> one. No, you're fine. I heard that one. <laughs> what
2: well, they discovered upon their arrival
1: was almost unspeakable. <laughs> we are all evil. It's so far more than the least. <laughs> I'm not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> the dead won't bother you. It's the living you got to worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons.
2: Hey guys, and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Vicki. And I'm Janelle. And we're back again from quarantine. Uh, still <laughs> Not
0: from quarantine. <laughs>
2: we are Well, in the not like of back from quarantine. <laughs> still in the middle of quarantine. Yes, yes Illinois has extended its stay-at-home order for the rest of May. And so Janelle and I are still recording in our respective homes.
0: Yes. Which is Uh, not that bad. It has turned out pretty good the last time, so (laughs) I'm pleasantly surprised. Yeah, it's actually actually
2: not terrible. I have a pop filter this week, so you won't have to hear all my breathing and my mouth noises as much, (laughs) hopefully. You realize how many mouth noises you make when you got to listen back to yourself on recording
0: oh yeah i absolutely hate it i can't listen to myself in headphones at all it's cringy (laughs) even though it's not that terrible but you know
2: this is why i'm real anxious to get back to the studios because tim's got the shit on lockdown Yeah, (laughs) just like i don't know what i'm doing
0: i mean i I Um, think we did pretty good so pat yourself on the back (laughs) pat pat pat
2: uh if this is your first time listening a special hello to you I'm very excited about today's show, uh, and it's going to be a good one, as always. But first, let's head over to the
0: newsroom.
2: Okay, Janelle, we are going back to Florida. I know God, it's been a while. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's been a while since we've been there, but we have to go back because I saw this earlier in the week and I just thought this is too good not to talk about. So a 42-year-old man named Richard McGuire was seen camping at Walt Disney World's Discovery Island. Did you hear about this?
0: No, I have not.
2: Okay. So as most of you should know, uh, Walt Disney World, they've, or Walt Disney Disney Company, really, has shut down their parks. There's no Disneyland. There's no Disney World. They're not planning on reopening for the foreseeable future. Some people are talking about them not reopening until 2021. Um, Which
0: is scary. If you know Disney, is like locking it down.
2: (laughs) True. Although they do make plenty of money from other ventures, (laughs) we'll say. (laughs) Um, So... This guy, Richard McGuire, had decided that he was going to camp on this Disney-owned property called, um, what did I say? Discovery Island. And Discovery Island is actually an attraction that isn't, when the parks are open, it's not open currently. It's been Mm -hmm. closed since 1999, but it's uh, part of a zoological attraction uh, Mm. before they had Disney's uh, Animal Kingdom. So it's like this precursor. He just showed up and said he wanted to camp there for a week, Um, because it was, according to him, a tropical paradise.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's an island.
2: (laughs) And so authorities showed up, and they were like, we've been trying to talk to you through this loudspeaker, and he said, I didn't really hear you because I was camping in a building on the island. Oh um <laughs> so he was arrested and charged with trespassing on posted property. He's also gotten a lifetime ban um from going to any Walt Disney World properties. So that's a bummer.
0: Did he announce that he was going there and that's why they found him?
2: No, but he was I'm sure I'm assuming security, they have security probably on the grounds. Mm-hmm. Um But they had gotten a report that somebody had seen somebody on the on the island, which was weird because, like I said, all the properties are closed. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of abandoned attractions. It's pretty fascinating if you um, read about all the closed abandoned attractions in Disney.
2: Oh, my God. I actually kind of love looking at that's one of those like Internet wormholes I'll get into where Mm -hmm. you just start looking at all of the abandoned attractions that are still just because they don't necessarily demolish them they just let nature take over again until they sell the property
0: it's pretty fascinating there's a lot of um, photographers who've gone down there and taken pictures of it with and without permission (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i mean there was some really nutty stuff that they tried that they were just like "Ooh, yeah never mind and then it just gets buried yeah
2: (laughs) Yeah, true. There's actually a great series on Vice. I know you can watch it on Hulu. It's just called Abandoned, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the guy goes to various spots. Uh, He's a skater, so he's like skating some of these spots that are uh, old abandoned buildings, not necessarily amusement parks and stuff. But he does an episode where he goes to New Orleans and goes to the Six Flags that's no longer open because it just got completely covered in water, essentially, from the hurricane. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, I love finding abandoned places.
2: (laughs) Yeah, like he literally had to go in with animal control people from New Orleans because of all of the like alligators or crocodiles, whichever ones are down Uh. there. And snakes and stuff. Yeah, it's nuts. Creepy. (laughs) We are going to head over to Netflix and Kill.
0: This week we are talking
2: about, oh my God, so much. I know, and I'm having a hard time because it's like, did I, have we already talked about this? Did we talk about this like weeks ago? I don't even know. Um, This week we're talking about a new documentary on Netflix called Murder to Mercy, the Toya Brown story. Uh, it was just released towards the end of April. And I know we discussed this on our live stream, but mm-hmm. uh, I finally gotten a chance to go back and watch it. I don't, have you taken a look at it yet?
0: I have not watched it yet, no.
2: Okay. Tell me all about it, Vicky. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Spoiler alert. Um, I mean,
2: it's nothing I mean, that you don't already know. I know Let's the story about it, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: so for those of you that don't know, Cintoya uh, Brown was an... American woman who was convicted of the murder and robbery of Johnny Michael Allen. Uh, she was 16 or year, 16 years old at the time of the murder and was being trafficked, sex trafficked, um, at the time. We say that now, but at, when she was originally being prosecuted, uh, which would have been, it was like in the early two thousands, I believe. Um, They didn't have the same view of child sex trafficking as we do now, and a lot of the laws have changed since. Uh, The documentary itself looks at uh, her case from when she was arrested at 16, essentially, to her release in 20... I believe it was 2018. I'm sorry, 2019. End of 2019. It's... I actually really enjoy the way this documentary was done because it's not... um, This sort of look back on the case, it's very similar to the staircase where they have been following her uh, essentially since she went into jail Mm -hmm. and uh, through her being transferred from juvenile court to the adult facility, spending all of this time in prison and then uh, ultimately being released on – she had her sentence commuted. Mm Mm-hmm. So I kind of like that style because you don't get a lot of this extra exposition from like the experts on whatever, or, you know, sometimes you get a little bullshittery in there. And this is just a straight up. It's much more documentary style. Yes. Yes. Which I kind of love. And it is, I mean, these things are hard to do because obviously this happened over quite a few years. And so it really kind of looks at these evaluations that she went through, some of the footage from her appeals process, uh, talking to her and her adoptive mother, along with her biological mother, kind of about family history. It does look at a lot of things like um, fetal alcohol syndrome and uh, fetal alcohol disorder, which is something that will affect you through your entire life. It looks at this idea of people being transferred from the juvenile system to the adult system and now um even just in that number of years that the view of that has changed as well Mm
0: -hmm.
2: i definitely think it's worth a watch it's done really well it's not a series like we normally talk about it is it like a it's like an hour and a half documentary so i don't think i i'm actually anxious to hear your thoughts on this once you get a chance because i don't think you're gonna Mm -hmm. be sometimes you're like they took too much on this, or they talked about this way too long, or they did whatever. And I think that's it happens way easier over the course of a series than it does, like, a uh, documentary
0: Yeah, definitely. Movie. I think that is the issue yeah. for me a lot of times, is the series, because they really want to provide you with a lot of content, and sometimes that content is just unnecessary.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. So, anyway, Cyntoia uh, Brown... Murder to Mercy on Netflix. Check it out. Worth a watch. You could do it in a day for sure. <laughs> Which is <laughs> kind of nice when you're talking about getting all your uh, all your Netflixes in. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys, this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. I am so excited
1: to oh, talk God. about this story
2: cuz oh, <laughs> it it is wild. You're going to love it. Made you
0: live a wild story.
2: Yeah, I decided this week that I don't I don't even know that I had necessarily an inspiration, but I was like, why have we never talked about this? Um, (laughs) Because it seems kind of obvious now that I think about it. But this week we're talking about hit men or women, as Janelle so kindly pointed out earlier. Hit
0: People (laughs) don't
2: hit people. (laughs) Don't hit people. (laughs) Uh, Murder for hire. Which mm-hmm. after I was trying to decide what to cover, did not realize that every search or like general search result with murder for hire was going to pull up Joe Exotic. I was like,
0: "Fuck yeah. me!" They like, really. Yeah, I just didn't think about it. I just... I I got real creative with mine, so mine is going to take an interesting twist.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! I cannot wait. I haven't looked at any of your notes, so I have no idea what is happening it hopefully you're gonna with the same person
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh no mine's a group of people so I guarantee you it is not
2: (laughs) okay I mean I guess technically mine is a group of people well let's find out we'll talk about it tell me all about it (laughs) uh so this particular story I actually really got into because a lot of it takes place right in our little uh home area of northern illinois here Ooh. and some things that i never knew about northern illinois i was just like really that was a okay <laughs> so we're gonna talk about a gentleman named silas jane and his uh brothers okay silas jane was born to this like huge family of there were eight girls and four boys and jane was the eldest he was born june 3rd 1907 in his teenage years, the Jane family owned a farm in Cuba Township in northern Illinois. Now this is different from there's a Cuba that's like down in southern or central mm-hmm. Illinois.
0: This is just northwest of Chicago. Yes. There's a a haunted attraction in Cuba, Illinois, up here. Is that the cemetery? It is. Isn't it a Cuba cemetery? Road. Thing? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was <laughs> like, I feel like because we had a, a family friend who lived down in Cuba and mm-hmm. I was like, I don't think this is the same Cuba. It's not no. definitely
0: not. I might do, maybe I'll do a little Patreon about that if you're if you guys are interested. I we went there so I could tell you a story and everything. So. Ooh, we'll that see. would be fun. Look, look on Patreon.
2: <laughs> Ghost story time, with you mm-hmm. Uh so while the family was huge, Jane's parents Arthur and Catherine actually separated when most of the kids were pretty young. Arthur it seems was supplying sugar to an illegal to illegal breweries during the prohibition era as you do <laughs> right uh, got to make that money got to make that sugar right am mm-hmm. i right right <laughs> i don't do people call money sugar i don't know uh I'm- cheddar <laughs> <It's common. laughs> So Catherine was also working. She worked in uh, Lake Zurich, Illinois, managing a resort and a picnic
0: grove. Very nice.
2: Now, Silas Jane had an extremely seedy background from the start. They talk about there was a story that I saw as I was researching that talks about um, when Silas was eight and he was bitten by a goose on the farm. Jesus. Instead okay. of <laughs> ignoring the animal, Jane decided to just get revenge by killing the entire flock.
0: Well, okay. That's one way to do it.
2: <laughs> just a little preview, like, into the future. in the crystal ball, the BTC <laughs> crystal ball. His first actual brush with the law, however, wouldn't come until the age of 17 when he was accused and convicted of rape in w- Waukegan.
0: Man, this is all the familiar places.
2: <laughs> I know. You're going to, oh, you're going to love it. He was, uh, for the rape, he was sentenced to a year in a reformatory. And when he returned to the family, the Jane family had actually started a horse ranch. And the three oldest brothers seemed to just take to this immediately. Hmm. In the 1930s, what they would do is they would ship trainloads of wild Mustangs into the train depot in Woodstock, Illinois. And then they would herd the entire lot of Mustangs through, like, the main street in town to their ranch. Okay. From there, they would keep and train the best of these wild Mustangs and send the ones that were not so up to snuff away to Rockford to be turned into dog food. I was like, oh, God.
0: Yeah, you could still buy horse meat for dog food in, like, Europe. It's frightening to me.
2: Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, guys, it's 2020. Can we just not? Can we just not?
0: What are you going to do with the horses when they die? That's what happens. People send them to the farm in the sky.
2: You just do nothing (laughs) with them. They're horses.
0: Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) It's the
2: circle (laughs) of life. (laughs) Oh, God.
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) The Jane Brothers were pretty successful in their endeavors. Um, Although they had kind of gotten this uh, reputation, we'll say, as rough and tumble cowhands who drank hard and fought harder.
0: My kind of people.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It definitely has this sort of like, uh, and I think it's just because of the time period, this sort of old western you feel, except in the Midwest. Yeah. This reputation, though, it didn't stop Silas Jane from becoming the top in his industry. Often selling his horses at inflated profits, in 1938, Silas and two of his brothers, Frank and DeForest, lived together at a riding okay. academy. Which, <laughs> wow, the what well, I which part of that are you laughing at? The DeForest uh, part or the, the living at a riding academy and a
0: riding academy. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a lot for me to handle.
2: <laughs> now, I'll be the first to admit, I don't really know a lot about horses or riding them or, like, competitions. Like, that whole thing. <sighs> Vicky, Not really my deal.
0: Vicki, I'm going to tell you something personal about me. It's
2: a big thing around here, but...
0: I used to have horses, and I trained... Did you? I tra- I trained in Western Saddle. <laughs> that does not surprise (laughs) me in the least like literally at all my first job was cleaning horse stables (laughs) (laughs) you know what but thinking about it that's actually i feel like
2: that's pretty common around here because just even around where we live there are so many horse stables around you know what
0: i looked like when i was a teenager do those two things mesh they don't (laughs)
2: No, no. It's like anarchist Janelle cleaning out horse stables Right, God. in your leather jackets with studs and your
0: big my hair. My fishnets, my fishnets all yeah. over the place. <laughs> I mean, the, the oh, army combat boots I had were very helpful when I was in the stables. Oh, I'm sure. You're
2: probably like, huh? they look awesome and they're functional. Exactly. <laughs> so... The, Silas and his two brothers, Frank and DeForest, they were living together at this riding academy. It sounded to me like um, a lot of these places had like apartments, uh, apartments over either the offices or like the stables that people would live in. Mm-hmm. DeForest at the time was actually engaged to a young woman named Mae Sweeney. One night just before DeForest was actually. Uh, he was heading over to see Mae Sweeney. She ingested a fatal amount of arsenic, taking her own life.
0: Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's happening, by the way. DeForest was extremely distraught by the loss of his love and. The day after his funeral, I'm sorry. The day after her funeral, DeForest drove to the cemetery where May was buried and shot himself with a 12 gauge double barrel shotgun.
0: Jesus Christ, okay. <laughs> and that's not a wonder why there's so many ghosts around here, <laughs> right? People just often themselves left and right. I will say, did not specify
2: which cemetery this was at, but you never
0: know. I mean, they're everywhere. <laughs>
2: Yeah. DeForest was discovered by uh Silas and Frank who had pretty much immediately started searching for him after they had discovered he was missing. Now, following his brother's death, Silas decided to open his own academy called Green Tree Stables. But it seemed like trouble was going to continue following Silas because soon after 10 of his horses died in a fire in 1940. God dang. The cause of the fire has never been determined and nobody has ever been charged with, like, arson or anything.
0: I mean, it could have been something stupid, like a lamp got kicked over. I'm looking at you, Chicago fire.
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. That was my first thought, too. It was like, uh, animals and lamps don't Don't mix. mix. (laughs) Uh, So later, their other brother, George decided that he wanted to get into the stable game himself and opened up a competing stable. And they, he was like a direct competitor with Silas's uh, stable. Okay.
0: it's <laughs> a little shitty. That that happens a lot with pizza places around here, if you know what I mean.
2: Oh my god, that's the other thing we have an abundance of is pizza places.
0: Yeah, it's always like a family and then one brother's like, yeah, I don't like the way you make fucking pizzas, so I'm gonna have my own joint.
2: <laughs> it's true, though. So after this competing uh, stable was open in 1952, George took his family on a vacation to Florida. Now, at the same time as they were in vacation, they were on vacation in Florida. Another fire broke out this time at George's home in Morton Grove, completely destroying uh, the seven bedroom home.
0: This is giving me PTSD over here.
2: (laughs) Yeah. While, Again, the cause of the fire was never determined. Many believe that Silas had a hand in intentionally setting the fire, but he was never arrested for it. Nobody was ever charged in the arson. His next run with the law came when three men had apparently broken into Silas's upstairs apartment and harassed a woman that had lived there. Now, I say apparently because Silas told the police he had fired at the men while they were leaving, but when he asked, to, he was asked to give a description of the suspects, he was not only able to precisely describe all three men, but provide their full names as well as the license number on the car. Hmm.
0: So, seems like a little, maybe a little frame-up was happening. Yeah, that sounds like that to me.
2: Yeah. The search began for the men and weeks later they were discovered in a, actually up in Wisconsin Dells, living sort of oddly lavishly for the area. They kind of talked about them driving around in these nice cars and just flashing money everywhere and just, you know, giving like the servers obscene tips. I mean, just a ton, like weirdly, have you ever been to Wisconsin Dells, I don't want, it's not a bad area, but it's also, depending on where you're at, like, it's a resort Not, town, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. When the local cops decided to stop the men for questioning, um because they had gotten the description from Silas's original report, one of the men shot one of the police officers and then they fled. Hmm. They were eventually caught and questioned about the break-in at Silas's, but all three men had alibis that were later confirmed. Turns out that Silas had a bit of a past with these guys and most believed that he was trying to frame them to get them in trouble. But because the officer had been shot, all three were tried and convicted of murder, which is Mm. a situation that would have never happened had had Silas not falsely identified the men to begin with.
0: Yeah.
2: It's one of these like weird cause and effect things, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The rivalry between Silas and George continued into the 60s as the two competed against each other at various competitions. Now, according to the Chicago Tribune, there was an exchange between Silas and George following George's mare winning the opening jump event at a competition, Yes. Silas was overheard yelling to George quote I'll never talk to you again you bastard and quote <laughs> I'll kill you you sob which I just love seeing sob in a news article <laughs> <laughs> so after that some really weird stuff started happening to George not long after that exchange 28 bullets were shot into George's office wow. most places refer to Yeah. Yeah. Most places talk about the sort of like sixth sense that he had because he had actually left the office only minutes before the incident took place and in a borrowed car, which meant that he actually left the office lights and his own car in the parking lot. Hmm. No one was ever charged for this and no one was ever like, I I think some people still suspected Silas but they didn't have any evidence that he had anything to do with it. George then had to deal with mysterious people constantly trying to run his car off the road and then someone leaving sticks of dynamite at his back door.
0: Oh that never just, went off. I'm like just like unlit dynamite.
2: <laughs> yeah, they had said that his uh wife had actually opened the door and had seen the six of dynamite on uh the ground and the fuse was lit but the fuse never it didn't stay lit long enough for like the dynamite to go off
0: yeah dynamite is super unreliable guys
2: <laughs> yeah then in 1964 george's prize-winning mayor named shotzi was found Lovely. dead <laughs> after being injected with <laughs> turpentine oh i know
0: Guys, am I going to bring the horses into it?
2: <laughs> Dude, it's a horse business. I know. Nobody was ever found for any of these incidents either. Uh, so Bullshit. That, it's just like, yeah. I, I wonder, there is part of me that's like, I'm sure George at the back of his mind is like, I know I have this rivalry, rivalry with my brother and it's probably him doing all this stuff. But man, do I just have bad luck? Because <laughs> it was like a lot of stuff in a small period. Yeah. Now it seems like people really started to look at this rivalry between the brothers after an event that happened in 1965. 22-year-old Cheryl Lynn Roode had stopped by to chat with George. Uh, when she left, George had actually given her the keys to his car saying he she could take it back to the office if she wanted to because he still had a little bit of work to finish up. So Cheryl took the keys, and when she got into the car and turned the key, it ignited three sticks of dynamite that had been attached to the steering column and exploded, instantly killing Cheryl.
0: Oh my god.
2: Right, yeah. It seemed pretty clear that the bomb had been intended for George. After all, it was dynamite in his car. Yeah. Authorities started an investigation and turned up two names, Stephen Grodd and Eddie Moran, both of which were frequent horse show attendees. They had told investigators that they had been hired by Silas to kill George and that they had flown in from Florida to Illinois that day, um, the day that Rude had been killed to kill George. Silas had then offered them an additional $15,000 to try again. The two, Grodd and Moran, both started began cooperating with investigators and contacted Silas saying, quote, It's time to buy a horse, which was code for making a hit.
0: It's time to kill the... I mean, buy the horse.
2: It's time to buy a horse. Wink, wink. Wink, Winkity, wink, wink. Wink. That horse. Yeah.
0: You know the horse we're talking about? Mm -hmm. (laughs)
2: Uh, A sheriff's detective named William Witzman went with Grad to meet Silas regarding the hit and he went posing as like a hitman that he had brought in. There Silas gave them a thousand dollars as a down payment. While they were a- they weren't able to pin the car bombing directly on Silas they were able to bring a charge of conspiracy to commit a crime after he exchanged this money with the detective posing as a hitman. Hmm. Now the trial started in March of 1966 with the entire case relying on the testimony of Grad, who, when he went to testify, had conveniently forgotten about the $15,000 payment of and <laughs> ex- explained the $1,000 payment to the fake hitman as a payment for a horse. i <laughs> just like... Of course, of course. I guess, I guess stick to your guns... If you 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 know, I love all the horse like like the horse being a code phrase, buying the horse as a code phrase and oh just God. using that as an excuse. It was obvious code money. too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, buy a horse. So Grad goes in, forgets about the payments. Um, following his testimony, charges against Silas Jane were dropped and Grad was held in contempt of court. Not long after the conspiracy trial, George Jane's office was burglarized, and he was eventually indicted for tax fraud, which reportedly was thanks to Silas turning over some information to the IRS. The implication being that Silas had broken into George's office, gotten a whole bunch of financial documents, and like sent them off to the IRS. Hmm. Now, I will say, despite seemingly overwhelming evidence and testimony from something like it was like 52 government witnesses, a jury actually found him innocent. And because of this, George hired a security guard to guard his property. Now, I will say George himself played sort of a role in this feud as well. Um, He had actually hired a private investigator to tail Silas in 1969 During one of the stakeouts, Silas heard a noise on the property when one of the investigators uh, went onto his property to check a bug that had been placed on his car. Silas later told authorities that when he called out to whoever was on the property, that he was shot at. And so he returned fire, eventually killing this man. But because there were no witnesses, authorities kind of had to accept Silas's story um, and chalked it up to a self-defense claim. Or justifiable homicide, I think is the the proper term. The whole feud came to an end when after celebrating his son George Jr.'s sixteenth birthday, George Jane was shot through their rec room window with a thirty caliber hunting rifle. Oh
0: my gosh. <laughs>
2: A man then sprinted across the lawn and hopped into a getaway car. Now, luckily, a neighbor had seen the car, um, but he was only able to provide police with a partial plate, which something at the time that was not entirely helpful because they didn't like have computer systems that they could just type the right. first three numbers into and get all the license plates in Illinois. In the meantime, authorities, aware of this feud between the brothers, they immediately went to Silas and requested that he submit to a lie detector test, which he refused, um, which doesn't mean anything because lie detector tests are one of those things.
0: Yeah. A waste of time.
2: <laughs> but he also told authorities that he and George had made up years earlier hmm. that they like weren't in this feud. But a lot of other people dispute that claim. Silas's theory was that George had been killed over gambling debts. Somehow or another, police were able to get a hit on the partial license plate, which led them to a 37-year-old dishwasher who was found carrying $10,000 in cash. And Silas's fingerprints were on 17 of the bills. The dishwasher, along with two other men apparently involved in the plot, agreed to cooperate with police in exchange for immunity and pointed the finger at Silas. In an interesting BTC cameo, (laughs) Silas hired one of our favorite lawyers ever, F. Bailey, to defend him at trial. (laughs) I was like, he just, F. Bailey, Bailey pops up in so many places unintentionally. I'll be researching something. It's like, oh, great. (laughs) <laughs> Here you are, again, Mr. Athley yeah. yeah.
0: Bailey radar.
2: It's true. Not on purpose. It's my curse. <laughs> <laughs> he was ultimately found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and was sentenced to 6 to 20 years. After seven years in prison, Silas was paroled in 1979, and he died of leukemia in 1987. So... Ultimately, um, they actually, at his trial, they had a choice of convicting him of murder. And this is one of the things that Effley Bailey points to as a success, is that he was able to get him off of the murder charge and only convicted of the conspiracy because he wasn't actually the trigger man. One of those stupid, weird things. Now, I will say, just before I wrap up, there are a few things that I skipped over, mainly because it wasn't relevant to the feud between Silas and George, and a lot of this stuff was not discovered until long after Silas's death. But it turns out that he may be more notorious than people think. Oh. Silas was linked to the murders of 13-year-old John Schusler, his brother, 11-year-old Anton Jr., and their friend... 14 uh, year old robert peterson the three boys were found naked in a ditch on the north side of chicago in 1955 jane's involvement came to light in 1977 when the atf was investigating the disappearance of helen brock the heiress to the brock's fortune mm, uh, root
0: beer barrels Longs.
2: <laughs> yeah long story short the murders of the boys while they weren't committed by Silas they were committed on his property and so Silas Jane helped to cover up the crime and helped to dispose of the bodies but like i said this didn't come out until it happened in 1955 and they didn't figure it out until 1977 so like Long I, don't, nice time. I don't even know what was going on then <laughs> yeah Silas is also suspected to be behind the disappearance of 21-year-old Ann Miller, 19-year-old Patricia Blow, and 20-year-old Renee Brühl in 1966. He's also been suspected of being involved in the 1956 murder of the Grimes sisters.
0: Aha. I'm familiar with that case.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the... He's also suspected to have played a part in the 1977 disappearance of the heiress Helen Brock, heiress to the Brock's fortune. Again, these are all things that are very, very interesting. I actually would like to look into Helen Brock's disappearance, possibly for a future episode. I'm not sure, but they just didn't really seem relevant to the whole... You know,
0: yeah, those are all stories on their own.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like I said, we might come back to to uh, some of these, but I just it was this like family feud thing. Both brothers were being real shady. Also horses. Also, also little... horses. <laughs> that's why I. That's why I love this story. But that is the story of the Jane brothers. That is
0: fucking nutty man (laughs) I love it I love it
1: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
0: lucky in line at the deli I guess
2: aha in my dentist's office No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: So, I wanted to kind of find a woman, assassin, hit lady, your preferred pronoun. Okay. And I was having a hard time finding one. That was legitimate, because there's a lot of make-believe, this-could-have-been-a-person story, if you catch my drift. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But I came across a lot of women, hitmen, assassins, however you want to say it. I'm going to say assassin. Uh, I kind of like assassins. Yeah. Assass lady. Assass <laughs> <A> lady. <laughs> I found a lot of female assassins in relation to like political struggles. So I kind of went that route. Okay. And I wanted to highlight a badass lady. So are you familiar with the name the Bader-Meinhof group? No. That actually kind of sounded like a foreign language. It is a foreign language. Um, what about oh, the Red, okay. red Army <laughs> faction? Does that sound familiar to you? That sounds familiar, although I couldn't tell you why. So, uh, Bader-Meinhof, there's a movie called The Bader-Meinhof Complex, um, which regales this tale um, the beginning of it, because this is a very intricate organization, but... They are a West German far left militant organization founded in nineteen seventy by Andreas Bader, Gundrun Eslin, Horst Mailer, and Ulrika Meinhoff. So Very German. Very German. German. <laughs> very <laughs> German. Oh my god. The German. You get to hear my excellent German accent as I pronounce all of the things. Oh, this weird is gonna be good. For names. once it's not me having to do the foreign names. I'm pretty good with my German accent. (laughs) Um, This group actually had several like waves of influences. Um, So that first group that I just told you, that was like the first wave. And then um, a bunch of things happened and then they had like a second wave come in. So I'm going to kind of take you through a little bit of the history um, the group is responsible for a series of bombings, kidnappings, bank robberies, shootouts, and assassinations. Wow. Over the course of three decades. That is quite the list. It's a lot. Um, they reached their peak in 1977 during the Deutsche Herbst, which is German for the German autumn. Um, so I'm going to talk about the Deutsche Herbst. And a particular lady, Bridget Monhaupt. And I hope I said her last name right. It has got a lot of vowels in it. (laughs) Oh, boy. I'm ready. All right. So I'm going to give you like a little quickie history lesson of the Red Army Faction. So you can kind of get an understanding of why they were taking these particular actions. Um, The group was born out of the West German student protest movement of the late 60s. So... Everyone was protesting the Vietnam War, no matter if they were in the United States or not, because it was affecting everyone very globally. But they were actually really focusing a lot on the... And I'm going to throw some awesome terms at you. Are you ready? Oh,
2: my God, They were protesting
0: cultural hegemony of Germany. (laughs) Now, cult... Wait. (laughs) Cultural
2: hegemony. Hegemony. What does Uh that
0: even mean? So, it is a term... That describes the domination of a culturally diverse society by the ruling class who manipulate the culture of that society in their favor. So what they're particularly talking about is the kind of repercussions of Nazi Germany and how it was still affecting their class system after the war. Okay. So... If you're not familiar what happened after World War II, Germany split up. We have West Germany. Um their economy is absolutely fucked. There's still Nazis in the government, whether they are confirmed or they were sympathizers. So if you think of how like us millennials are like snarky and we talk about the baby the baby boomers and we have all these baby boomer memes, this was like how it was in the streets of Berlin, right? They were like Talking at these Nazis like the way we talk to baby boomers. <laughs> okay. So So very uh, okay boomer attitude. Yeah. They're like, okay, Nazi. Okay, <laughs> okay Nazi. Yeah, okay, Nazi. Oh so my God. that's what most of their protests are about, and they kind of talked about it through the lens of the Vietnam War. So you have a lot of this pent-up anger and aggression coming out, and a lot of people taking extreme Political action. And a lot of these groups were very, very left leaning and heavily influenced uh, by Marxist Leninist ideologies. So, communism, <laughs> which, of course, damn, not a great thing to be like repping. No. <laughs> um, no. In, not especially not in at this that time. time period in this yeah. know, particular place. People were just like, communist! Oh, ah! <laughs> God. Oh, God. So the gang didn't actually start becoming violent until after a shooting of a student, Benno Osnorg, at a protest by police. So that's like kind of the pivotal point where they decided that they needed to take more action because they felt that the police were being too militant. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's like. I don't know how many
2: times we can watch history repeat itself, but Jesus.
0: Let's get it together,
2: people. I'm going to say it again. It's 2020.
0: (laughs) Um, We're going to look more at the second wave of the RAF, which was in the mid-70s. Now, from February to May of 1972, a series of incidents occurred in Berlin. There was a bombing at a hatch club. The um, U.S. Army headquarters and a bunch of companies also were bombed, so... They were dropping bombs left and right. Uh, after the major leaders of the Bader-Meinhof were arrested, so that first wave of people, that included a member, Brigitte Monhaupt. Now, Brigitte Monhaupt was a philosophy student at the University of Munich, so totally legit. Uh, <laughs> okay. She was, aff- <laughs> she was affiliated with a lot of socialist parties to begin with, She was part of the German commune scene, which if you think about like the free love movement in the United States, they called it a commune scene in Europe. She decided to join the RAF in 1971 after one of the socialist parties she was part of disbanded. So she kind of had this organizational role where she was organizing people and protests and things like that. Now in June of nineteen seventy two, Monhaupt was arrested in Berlin in connection with the RAF and sentenced to prison for involvement with a criminal organization, identity document forgery, and illegal weapons possession. You're like, okay, story over. Oh my
2: gosh. Yeah. No. Oh. No. <laughs> this okay. is just the
0: beginning of her story. <laughs> like I oh said, it comes in waves.
2: Well and that's really those are that's a really interesting list because I feel like those are all pretty major crimes. Like mm-hmm. if you like at least today.
0: They're pretty major. Yeah. So she remained in prison from nineteen seventy two to nineteen seventy seven. So she was in there for a couple of years. Now before she was released, she was housed in the Steimheim prison. Now while in Steimheim, she met Gundrun Eslin, Andreas Bader, and jean carl Rasp, and began training to become a leader of the RAF because she was for sure getting out. And that first wave of RAF people were not going anywhere. They were staying in prison. So they figured, all right, we need somebody to take over when they get out so that we can keep this thing rolling along. Now, upon her release, she went into hiding to continue the work. This is when plans for the Deutsche Herbst, the German autumn, uh were kind of hatched. Okay. And it's really like that word Duscher Herbst. <laughs> it's very fun to say. Oh, I thought you meant <laughs> German autumn.
2: I do I will say in at least in English, the phrase German autumn sounds very ominous. It like, is, it right? It sounds very like the Arab Spring
0: like I exactly. think that's why I'm like mm-hmm. Ooh. Mm. So I'm going to list a couple of events that occurred during the Dusha Herbst. So you can see what the hell was going on. It's going to get a little gruesome, so buckle up. I'm ready. In April of 1977, Siegfried Buback, the Attorney General of West Germany, was shot and killed along with his driver Wolfgang Goebel and passenger Judicial Officer George Verst. In July of 1977, Jürgen Ponto, the head of Dresdner Bank, was shot and killed in his house. And it was kind of like this kidnapping that went wrong. So they fucked up real bad. (laughs) Oh, God. In September of 1977, the RAF attacked the limo of Hans Martin Schleyer, then president of the German Employers Association in Cologne. In like a very classic cinema style, they pushed a baby carrier out into the street so the car would come to a sudden stop. The limo was being followed by um, a police escort because they knew a lot of the heads of banks and major corpor- uh, corporations were being targeted by the RAF. So they yeah. had people being followed by police escorts. So they <laughs> oh pushed the baby God. carriage out. The limo slams on their fucking brakes. The police behind them run into the back of the limousine. And then immediately after the police car slams into the back of the car, RAF members sprayed the entire convoy with machine guns, killing several people. Oh my gosh. Now, (laughs) Schleyer was actually okay and was kidnapped and held in a rented apartment in this kind of anonymous residential neighborhood near Cologne. He was forced to make a video um, that was sent to the West German government, and it said that in exchange for him, they wanted RAF members who were in prison released. Now, uh, a month later, three of the imprisoned RAF members were found dead in their cells. Oh, God. So immediately, Schleier was shot dead en route to uh, Mulhouse, France, and they left his body in the trunk of a green Audi 100. Jeez, so they kind of
2: retaliated. The whole, <laughs> whole plot is like so extra. It's but very these people extra. People are not fucking around, which is They're why it makes around.
0: for a really great movie plot.
2: <laughs> yeah, true. And I did. I totally can envision just like the classic baby carrier. Like it was
0: just. I was reading slowly this. Slowly rolling lot of... to the road. I saw the movie, and there's a lot of really great books about this particular era in Germany. It's very fascinating. Post World War II Germany is fucked. <laughs> there's no other way to say it. But yeah, um, it, yeah, it is. The interesting, the interesting thing about this particular aspect of the story is they were saying that the RAF members who were imprisoned and found dead in their cells committed suicide. Right now. There is this kind of contention because a lot of RAF members did commit suicide in their prison cells as kind of like a protest uh, for refusing to talk and refusing to cooperate with the government. They took their own lives with a cyanide capsule. So not uncommon. So they said these three RAF members committed suicide. Now there's one camp that says that they did because then that would push the other RAF members to kill Schleyer. Okay. Um, There is a group of people who think that the police just killed them because they didn't care and they didn't think that the people who kidnapped Schleyer would actually kill him. Well, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I feel like maybe they were killed by police but not really in retaliation, just kind of like, you know, <laughs> they just killed them because they were being obstinate or whatever. Because they're police. Because they are terrible police and this is West Germany. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it is very, you know, militant kind of police in west germany yeah so right now to top off that magnificent story we're gonna put a hijacking of a plane on top of this shit sunday um <laughs> oh my gosh there was a hijacking of a lufthansa aeroplane land shoot on october 13th 1977 with the help of allied palestinian group the pflp they were trying to get some, like, political hostages, you know, released. That was the whole the whole thing with their allied group of the, the PFLP. So they went to the Arabian Peninsula, and the captain was actually kind of pushing back a little bit and not wanting to cooperate. So they wound up execution-style shooting the fucking pilot in the head, oh. and then they took the plane— and they landed in Mogadishu, Somalia. Oh, God. Okay. Somalia cooperated and they allowed for Germany to, like, shoot at this plane.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> so
0: some people were arrested. Some people were killed. It was a real shit show. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> at this point, Bridget Monhart, um fled to Yugoslavia and was in hiding for many, many years. So now it's 1978 and people are still looking for her and the Yugoslavian police actually find her and they go to West Germany and they say, listen, we found Monhaupt. We know she's your number one person on your fucking most wanted list. Let's make a trade. Oh, of course. So they wanted Croatian political fugitives in exchange for Mannhaupt and three other RAF members. That was their, you know, talk. They were like, let's do this exchange. West Germany was like, no. (laughs) West (laughs) Germany refused to cooperate. So the talks broke down and Yugoslavia fucking released her. Oh, my God. Just like, you know what? Fuck it. (laughs) Yeah. They were like, fuck you, West Germany. And they let her go. (laughs) Oh my god, that's kind of funny. That's, I mean... Yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, Don't fuck with Yugoslavia. So she went back into hiding, and eventually she found her way back to Germany and decided to create more trouble and wreak the most amount of havoc. So now it's September of 1981. Mannhaupt decided that it was time to take things into their own hands. They decided to assassinate U.S. General Frederick Croson... With an RPG seven anti tank rocket, just let that sink in. Uh, <laughs> they're going to kill a man with a rocket.
2: So where does one just acquire rockets? I mean, is that is that a maybe?
0: I'm just not. I mean, in the know, it's. But. <laughs> this is a, this is like Cold War times. So there's a lot of uh, ammunitions and rockets and tanks and everything that were left over from World War II that were just sitting in Eastern Europe. Yeah. So you, if you know anything about like Eastern European issues in the late 70s until the mid to late 90s, I'm talking like Serbians, just like all of these wars happening in Bosnia, Herzegovina, like shit was going down because of all of these just fucking military things laying around. Yeah. Oh my God. So um, they attempted to assassinate General Frederick Croson, but they failed because the tank rocket didn't work. (laughs) Oopsie. Oopsie doodle. Mm -hmm. So the government caught wind of this and they were like, all right, we really need to fucking find her. So now it's November of 1982. And just by happenstance, Mannhaupt was caught outside of a wooded area, and this wooded area was serving as RAF's arm cachet near Frankfurt, Germany. So she was probably going out there shopping for some guns, and the surveillance caught her. So Mannhaupt was detained and sentenced to five terms of life in prison with a minimum of 24-year mandatory sentence. You're like, okay, obviously she's staying in prison for life, right? Wow. No. Oh. No. (laughs) (laughs) You're wrong. (laughs) Now we're going to fast forward all the way to 2007. Oh. It has been 25 years. Okay. And Mon Hopped has reached her minimum and she was looking for release. And you're like, there's no fucking way they're going to release her, right? That's insane. It's wrong. It's it's
2: just (laughs) insane to me to give somebody five life sentences, and then a 24-year minimum. I don't know. It just seems, like, really lopsided. It seems arbitrary. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, in February of 2007, amidst a massive amount of fucking controversy, the court gave Monhaupt parole, effective in March. So she was released on parole. It was granted because... Uh, A psychologist deemed that she was no longer a danger to society, even though she was hatching all the plans to kill all the people. Oh my gosh. She's no longer a danger. You know, So there was a lot of people who thought that she shouldn't have been released, but there was a small faction of people who thought that she should have because she didn't actually directly kill people. Like, she wasn't shooting people or, you know absolutely directly involved in the kidnappings. Yeah, I
2: guess. they. To me, like, I don't... I I am all for rehabilitation and release, if it's possible. I just feel like with Mm -hmm. that, like, the sentencing specifically just seems very weird to me. Like you said, very arbitrary. It is. And not... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't... Not fitting of the crime, but...
0: Yeah. I mean... But also well, here's here's the point that I want to okay. impress is that she was released in two thousand and seven. West Germany no longer exists. The mm-hmm. issues of the government, Nazis, all of that stuff is gone. yeah, the Vietnam War was done, right. So everything that they were fighting for no longer exists,
2: yeah, that's true,
0: so I guess that's why they could see that she's no longer a danger to society because the things that they were fighting for were no longer an issue,
2: right, huh. I don't know, that just seems weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that uh that was Bridget Monhopped and the Bader Meinhof group and that damn Duscher Herbst German Autumn. <laughs> it's very fascinating. Yeah. Duscher Herbst. Um, there is a third wave that occurred after she went into jail. But it's a very fascinating story. I highly recommend um watching the movie. It's a fictionalized interpretation, but it is pretty interesting. Um there's a bunch of books you can read about all the different factions. But yeah, it's nice. It's fucked. There's a lot and a lot and a lot of assassination happening. Oh my god. <laughs> so much kidnappings, bombings, all the things. So much. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you call your
2: assassin, listen to this podcast.
1: The neighborhood is unsafe, the streets unlit, while others sleep soundly, you lie awake because you know the truth, you know that, no matter where you go, there's always a chance that a monster is in your midst. The darkness that runs deep within our own veins, the evil found in even the sweetest of souls, sometimes comes to light, and when it does, the result is a person that takes on that evil, that wears it proudly and becomes part of the darkness itself. I am Aaron from Devil We Know Podcast. And on our true crime show, we dive into the scariest corners of our past and present to reveal the devil we know. A father, a mother, a brother, a sister, and anyone, anywhere who hides in plain sight. Living a life of bloody secrets while living just next door. Come check us out and hear the chilling, true stories about the devils we know.
2: All right, guys, that has been our show for this week. Thank you for joining us once again to listen to us talk about hitmen and the like. Yeah. And hit women or women assassins. (laughs) Hit. Assassin ladies.
0: Is that what we just (laughs) said? Assassin ladies.
2: (laughs) We do still have a couple of events coming up that have not, as of yet, been canceled
0: let's hope they don't get canceled
2: i hope yeah i hope so (laughs) we will see um our students one is going to be in july july 11th and 12th we will be in kansas city missouri for the true crime podcast festival you can check out more information and any updates regarding the event at tcpf2020.com we're going to be there hanging out saying hi uh taking pictures i guess and <laughs> doing the things generally doing podcasty things yeah like i said it's not i know that is one of those like weird areas that people are wondering if things are still going on some things for that time period have already mm-hmm. been canceled so we will do our best to keep you updated as it gets a little closer but as of right now that's still yeah, they thing. haven't said anything
0: and i definitely i asked i was like he's still good yeah <laughs> Yeah, I haven't so, received a, an answer yet. So yeah, so no keep, news uh, is good news. That's I don't what
2: know. <laughs> that's what I am counting on right now is the no news is good news. Uh, but mm-hmm. keep an eye on our social media; we will let you guys know if anything changes. But again, you can go to tcpf twenty twenty dot com for more information on that. Janelle, you want to tell us what's going on later in the year?
0: Yeah, so in September. Uh, the 4th through the 13th, there is the uh, Elgin Fringe Festival happening in Elgin, Illinois, downtown, uh, whoop in whoop. conjunction with Side Street Studio Arts. We'll be there telling tales on stage for a live show. Yeah. Uh, wonderful, adoring fans. Uh You know, we don't do a lot of them, but when we do, boy, do we do them. (laughs) We we do the thing. We do the do. We really do it. Yep. (laughs) So this one will be wonderful. Uh, This is the first time we've been with the Fringe Festival officially. We did their winter mini-Fringe, which is kind of like a teaser show.
2: Yeah, it was super fun.
0: But the Fringe Festival, if you're not familiar, is a week-long event that incorporates... All different types of entertainment. They have um, illusionists, musicians, comedians, podcasts. It's just everything and anything you can think of. All things weird and strange. So we'll be there. We don't have the exact date of when our show is going up yet. But when we do, we'll let you know. The tickets and all the information will be available at ElginFringeFestival.com. Or you can check out Side Street Studio Arts. That will link you to the Fringe Festival as well. And we will have information on our page as it comes out. Nothing for the fall has been canceled yet, so keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> They're crossed over here, for sure. Yes. Because the Fringe Festival, I participate every single year as a visual artist, and it's fun. It's very, very fun.
2: So. Yeah, it was fun working with them earlier in the year, so I'm really looking forward to that one. Mm-hmm. There are a couple other things I really quickly I want to touch on before we get out of here One, as you might have seen, we've been a little bit more active on our YouTube. Uh, We are doing, at the moment, weekly live streams on Fridays for the time period that we are in shelter in place to uh, give us Mm -hmm. something to do, give you guys something to do. Just, to, just a little hangout, some crime talking things. <laughs> but we've also started releasing our episodes uh, to YouTube as well. So if any of you are able to listen there, you can do that now as well. Um, just go to YouTube and search the Bad Taste Crime Cast and you'll find us. I just wanted to, uh, to put yeah. that out there. Uh, also, we'll there. <laughs> if you guys want to check out any merch... Um, I'm thinking I should take some time during this quarantine to work on some new merch ideas. Yeah. I mean, if I've got the time. yeah. (laughs) Um, But you can go to badtastecrimecast.com slash merch. It'll take you to the merch store and
0: you can buy all of your Bad Taste Crime Cast things. Needs? I don't know. And then you can head on over to Patreon. Yeah. And check that out. And see all the extra awesome content we have. I've been putting together a couple more things to put up there. You know, our live streams have been occupying all my time with all the glorious games I've been concocting. Oh my god, so Um, good. (laughs) Yeah. So good. um, But go over there. There's lots of backlog stuff. For just a dollar a month, you get access to all the additional things that your heart could ever desire from us. So (laughs) go on over and see what's up.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, we, we got everything and anything else? Is that it? I think that's I think it. That's it. All right, guys. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zechowski, The Enigma. <laughs> <laughs> this has been The Bad Taste Crimecast. We will see you in 2 weeks. Stay safe and goodbye. Bye. 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 Goodbye. Get out. Ten
0: young women left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of people washed over this town. We
1: are all evil, right? In some form or another.
2: There's the burps.